Right. Hey guys. So on the other side of the screen here, I have none other than the Dr. Eric Helms and uh, Helms, Dr. Helms. Wow. Um, rumor on the street has it that you are obsessed with pyramids. Would you mind uh, clarifying that obsession for the for the people? Because the, the, the you know there's been some concerns about Illuminati association. Um, you know what is three muscle journey really? Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think there, there's a number 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 of things that are happening right now. So for one, uh, I'm in a continuing legal battle with Egypt um, uh, regarding who really had the first pyramids. Um, and you know, we'll, we'll see how that, how that resolves. Uh, secondly, um, the Illuminati is definitely something I'm part of, uh, which is the, the secret cabal of natural bodybuilders who are taking over the, uh, the fitness industry. Uh, unfortunately we have had a claim against us for copyright infringement by the Illuminati, sorry, the Illuminati, the, uh, the secret organization that, uh, is, is vying for control of the world. Um, maybe with or in, in competition with reptilian overlords. So uh, right now it's, 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 a, it's a stressful time for me. It is a, uh, a time of, of reflection though as well. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it speaks to, you know, I think some of the things I've accomplished that I'm essentially at a, a crossroads where I have to decide, do I want to battle with the Illuminati or Illuminati, excuse me, or Egypt, you know, you don't want to have a war on two fronts, but um, I'm playing with the big boys and girls now. So, uh, you know, you can't be, I got to stay grateful, you know, that I'm at this point in my career. Well, ho hopefully, you know, that clears some things up for the, the viewers, you know, basically it's complicated and it's ongoing mm -hmm. um, and only time will, will really tell. And with the current zombie apocalypse, we may, we may, may never know, you know. So Absolutely, it's, it's unfortunate, but just just history will be written by the victors, and at this stage, that may just be. <laughs> it's gonna be Eric. Uh, yeah, exactly. There you go. So yeah. there's only there. I, we only see one. Uh, you know, nobody really wants to say it because of legal issues, but mm. you know, I think we all know how it'll turn out. Um, but anyways, the. <laughs> The main topic I wanted that this uh, episode is going to delve into is basically um, programming differences for bodybuilders, you know, people who are physique enthusiasts who are in search of the hypertrophies or people mm. that really like, you know, the idea of picking up really heavy rocks in the form of barbells mm. and what and whatnot. So barbell based movements for powerlifting. Um, and Dr. Helms has experience, um, competing in uh, both sports, interestingly, and has extensive coaching experience. Um, uh, he's coached Bryce Lewis and multiple national, uh, you know, multiple natural bodybuilders to the stage. Um, so he has some, lots of practical experience, not only, you know, anecdotally, but also practically in the field. Um, so I guess uh, to begin, I would like to um, just first ask, um, what are the main the differences that you have to kind of consider when you have a client who, let's say, um, you know, you have a client that comes to you and in the case of Bryce, um, a power lifter, um, what are the main considerations that you would take into account um, when constructing a strength-based program? Yeah, so uh, if I'm gonna be writing a program for a power lifter, um, I need to know, and this is a, you know, philosophy that 
extends to any client where they are currently, where they've been and where they need to go. So um, I'm coming in at a time point in their career, uh, but they've been around doing this thing for a while. Uh, even if they are completely new to the idea of powerlifting or wanting to train for powerlifting, they probably have some training history uh, or they at least have a personal history, which can give me better information about how to help them. Um, so the best way to determine what's an appropriate, you know, volume for, for a power lifter or loading or, or frequency of the lifts. Um, and this has parallels with any other client, like the size of the calorie deficit for, for someone who's dieting, um, the one who's, uh, uh, training for anything all comes down to where have they been and, and what do they have access to? What are they currently doing? What's been successful in the past, or at least the very least, what has not been successful in the past. Um, and then you apply that same framework to whatever the goal is. So for a power lifter, um, there are very few like absolute givens, but there are some, um, they are going to need to do the squat, the bench and the deadlift. And they're going to need to try to get the highest single rep they can on the platform. So we have some guidelines for specificity there. It means you're probably going to want them doing the squat bench and deadlift, uh, and they're going to need to be training heavy. And beyond that, man, there's a uh, ton of variation you can have. There's a ton of inter-individual differences that will guide those things. Uh, and those inter-individual differences are not just necessarily like physiological or genetic uh, because it's not like I get a genetic test for all my athletes done, nor even if I did, would I know what to do with it? Um, however, uh, what type of life they have? Uh, do they train at home? Do they have a gym they train at? Uh, do they train after a long day at work? Uh, do they train first thing in the morning before they go to work? Are they someone who's a trainer and uh, they have much more flexible hours with their training? Are they someone who is... Uh, been training for a long time, but it's new to powerlifting. There's, there's almost an endless number of questions. So uh, all of that kind of is applied to those two basic principles. We need to lift heavy. We need to do the big three to dictate that program. Uh, beyond that, um, then there becomes the question of when do you plan to compete if you plan to compete? Um, since you kind of frame this as powerlifters and bodybuilders, well, I think it's useful to take the idea of competition because uh, the more constraints and timeframes you have to work with, the more the plan starts to fall into place. So if someone comes to me uh, with six weeks to prepare for a powerlifting competition, I know it's going to be highly specific. We're going to be doing a lot of the competition lifts in a traditional format. Uh, and we're going to be trying to push as much intensity through that system as we can without breaking the person to get them prepared to compete on game day. If they come to me six months out, uh, then I will have a good chunk of time to lay down some of the uh, long-term aspects that might contribute to strength. So trying to see if we can grow some muscle, uh, trying to see if we can and build a lot of the uh, habits around what might benefit their strength long-term. So looking at what can we do with qualitative aspects of the diet? Um, uh, what can we do to non-energetic uh, factors like when you eat, how you distribute your nutrients, uh, which, which food, do you, do you get enough fruits and vegetables? All this stuff. Uh, what is your sleep like? So I think when I have more time with someone, I can look outside of the most specific factors. And when I have less time, it has to be highly specific, uh, but still related to what they've been doing. So, you know, a lot of what we call quote unquote periodization 
uh, and some of the concepts for strength are pretty logical when you think about them. So for example, we know that strength has a lot of things that, that factor into it, uh, your technical execution. Uh, you can take someone who is you know, not very good at, at, at squatting, benching, or deadlifting and teach them to be more efficient. Uh, and they can, within a couple of days, increase their strength once they kind of integrate those motor patterns. Likewise, you can take someone who's a very efficient conventional deadlifter and a very efficient sumo deadlifter, and one will probably be higher. And that just might be uh, certain characteristics of their body that lend them to one another. So you might have to experiment to figure out what that is. Uh, motivational factors, arousal, um, and a lot of acute things might affect strength, but also how much muscle mass do you have? And what are the other morphological adaptations uh, to strength training that can give you, uh, you know, greater, greater strength output, like better lateral force transmission um, and neuromuscular adaptations. There's a bunch of stuff, but going back to that question of periodization, um, if I have enough time, I can do more of those longer term adaptations. So I can put them through a higher volume block. I can use less specific training because while a deadlift does train your lats, because you have to do some shoulder extension to keep the bar close to your body, no one would argue that the deadlift is the best lat builder out there. Um, likewise, a arched, wide grip, uh, limited range of motion uh, bench press is definitely going to build your chest, but most people wouldn't suggest that it's a really fantastic pec builder. It's a great way to express your maximal bench press strength within the confines of the sport. So perhaps, you know, we would be doing things like more rowing, uh, doing lat pull downs, et cetera, uh, and then also doing different types of chest work, flat back, medium grip bench, uh, dumbbells, incline, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, likewise, while the squat, the bench, and the deadlift are the best way to build the strength in the squat, the bench, and the deadlift in the immediate term, um, they might also, especially at high loads, have the highest, have the highest uh, risks for potential injury or pain. Um, if you look at risk factors, uh, or sorry, rates of injuries per 1,000 hours of training, they're about two to three to four times higher in powerlifters and bodybuilders. Is that because of the heavy loads? Is that because they have to do squat, bench, and deadlift? Probably a little bit of both. Um, so if I can achieve uh, hypertrophy and other adaptations that are beneficial in the long run to strength without forcing them to lift heavy and do the big three, that's probably a safer bet. Uh, and I need time to do that because I'm not going to have them doing sets of eight on you know dumbbell presses when they're four weeks out because uh, that opportunity cost could be something that could be spent on something more specific and is more likely to translate to the platform. So the periodization becomes a little more clear for a strength athlete, uh, where you go through phases of higher reps, higher volumes, less specific work on a continuum until you're getting very close to the competition and you're doing singles uh, near your, your, your competition uh, lifts, whether that's, you know, close to the opener or occasionally, you know, really pushing the limit with a spotter to see what you can do before we then taper, drop some of that fatigue, dissipate some of uh, any pain and, and just stress levels that are mental and then come into the competition ready to perform. Uh, all of that lays out very nicely for a power lifter once you know what their schedule is. So those are kind of the, the big, big factor considerations. Um, and there's so many inter-individual differences that will dictate uh, whether you're squatting five times a week or whether you're squatting once and then doing only squatting twice per week. Uh, depending on age, family life, all the other things I mentioned earlier. Awesome. Well, um, that unpacked a lot of, of things. So um, I guess going off of the more of the power li lifting uh, direction, 
in terms of, um, you mentioned um, how you would kind of do, and more or less for, for anybody who is a strength coach or who does prep, you know, sport athletes such as, you know, a football player or baseball player, what kind of, you know, Eric, that you just outlined a general preparatory period, a more specific period, and then like once you're actually in the competition season, which in the case of a power lifter would be uh, when you're peaking for the meet um, to express national forces, the most specific movements and, and whatnot to actually be the best on the platform on that one day, because that's the whole purpose of peaking is to be the strongest on that one day. It doesn't matter if you're strong three weeks out because that's not a competition. Um, so I guess um, when you are planning, I guess, let's say, uh, let's just look at in general getting, you know, and let's say let's buy this just more towards an, an intermediate um, lifter, you know, a late beginner, early in intermediate. Let's say that you have six months in between a competition um, and you have six months to get ready. Um, and I think that um, with, with powerlifting, um, there are many different ways that people will prefer to program. Um, you have some coaches that insist on doing heavy singles, um, undulating and not just load um, you know, across a micro cycle, but also specific rep ranges. Um, you know, and the same way you could, you could be doing you know, a single and then you know, back down sets of seven and then do sets of five. And you have other coaches, you know, more of like how I personally do it is more in terms of specific blocks of periods, um, you know, devoted to mostly hypertrophy, less specific work, you know, strength block, and then a peaking block. Um, and I guess I wanted to, um, to, to ask, um, I guess, how much do we actually know of, is there a, like a, a best way to program for strength indefinitely based off of current data? Because, um, this is something that I've been questioning myself with my own programming because you see success with a lot of different pathways and this could be due to inter-individual inter differences or whatever, you know, but in terms of your practical experience, what the data currently does say, you know, using an evidence-based fitness approach, you know, true to its, its form, what have you found to be the best of, of approach or is likely or, you know, can even say definitively that there is likely a best approach for, you know, a powerlifter who's six, uh, you know, months out in terms of how should their programming look? Good question. I like that you want to use an evidence-based framework because it allows us to speak to uh, experience, uh, the needs of the individual, and also the, the data. And for those who are listening, those are kind of the three stool legs to what evidence-based practice is. So from that experience, um, the beauty of anecdotes is they provide information differently than, than research. Research is typically telling you about group averages um, and it has no limitations. Uh, probably the most pertinent limitation in this case is that the average training study, I wouldn't even say average, uh, the majority of training studies are about eight weeks long, some are 12, and those are often framed as long-term uh, training studies. Uh, and then the occasional one is longer than that. Um, we're talking about a six month period, that's 26 weeks or something like that. And so that means that the long-term quote unquote training studies are less than half the length we're talking about. So that really limits what we can take from the data 
is telling us kind of like, hey, what are like the one to two mesocycle, maybe one to three mesocycle length adaptations we can expect when comparing different paradigms. Another limitation is that comparing different paradigms is something you should probably put quotes around. If you were to, to run a study uh, where you compared a daily undulating model to a linear model or a block model, um, unless someone has done I, what I would say is the impossible job of making one of those models of periodization representative of all models uh, or programs that could come from those periodization approaches, uh, we can really only say with confidence that those differences were specific to those iterations. Um, so what can we say purely from the literature, which isn't something that we have in space, that would be like uh, science, like purist based, which isn't a good idea, uh, is that you should probably have some linearity. Uh, by linearity, I mean um, starting with higher volumes uh, and lower loads and getting to higher loads and lower volumes and tapering seems to reliably improve strength more than just having a static approach. Um, and in general, that's kind of uh, some of the relationships I talked about between hypertrophy and strength, um, maybe even getting more practice at lower loads before you become more specific later on. Um, and uh, generally also the idea of dumping fatigue at the end, the taper. So that, that's kind of like the, the purest approach there. Um, and if we were to use just a pure, super science-based program, that would mean, okay, we're gonna start with squat bench deadlift, a couple of accessories, and we're gonna do eights, and then we're gonna do sixes, and then we're gonna do fours, and we're gonna do twos, and we're gonna take a couple of days off, drop a set off, and then we're gonna compete, you know? Uh, and there's modifications to that, but that would be hashtag science-based. Um, anecdotes are interesting because they are uh, our own pattern recognition. And um, an expert is defined as someone who can make complex uh, decisions without necessarily knowing what led to it and be right more than someone who's a non-expert. So the way... This is essentially what intuition is. So there's been research on intuition and the more complex the task, uh, the more false experts there are with faulty intuition, you know? Um, so great book by uh, Daniel Kahneman called Thinking Fast and Slow. He goes over some research uh, where people who try to play the markets, investors, uh, people who play the stock markets, they think they have expertise, um, but when actually objectively looking at their stats, they're not doing better than chance because the stock market is an incredibly complex system. However, um, firemen, uh, highly experienced firemen may be able to remove their team from a burning building before it collapses and they won't be able to tell you what they specifically saw that told them that building was gonna collapse. Um, and the difference is, is that they're operating over different time scales and different complexities. So that fireman is dealing with immediate uh, connections between patterns of structural integrity of a home that he's been in, you know, multiple times per day on every shift he's, he's ran, uh, knows that he knows how hot it feels. Um, he knows the kind of weight that's on the ground, how long the fire has been burning other homes in this area. There's a bunch of data points that is reliably given that firefighter, the skill he has, uh, and there's other examples, this would be on firefighters that I could come up with. Um, while the stock investor is, creating probably just as many false correlations that are not causative or not related as there are, um, you know, negative ones and, or positive ones, I should say, or real ones. And there's, you know, 
regression to the mean, uh, negativity or positivity biases, um, you know, and all, all kinds of things that are going on there, uh, rationalizing, looking backwards to, to making sure make, things make sense. So for a coach uh, to develop uh, a pretty good quote unquote intuition and to become an expert, you have to have taken a lot of athletes from the start to the finish uh, and probably what I would argue is beyond the novice phase. So there's a term called regression to the mean. And regression to the mean is the idea that uh, because humans are homeostatic biological systems, uh, they will move towards homeostasis, okay? Uh, that is the mean. So they will regress towards normal. So this is especially important in medical literature. Like if, this is why they give placebo drugs to people because people typically get better unless they've been diagnosed with some kind of fast acting fatal disease. Like if you take two people with a cold and you do nothing with one person and you give the other person vitamin C, that shows the importance of the regression to the mean because people typically get better from colds. And if someone started having a cold, started taking vitamin C and got better, it's easy to confuse vitamin C as curing their cold with regression to the mean when it's probably the latter. But the only way you can know is comparing a placebo control group and also having that vitamin C group. And then you can see the effectiveness of ex expectation, that's placebo, regression to the mean, the control group, and then also vitamin C in, in above whatever that placebo might do. So this is a complex discussion of, of how uh, scientific theory works, but how it applies to resistance training is interesting. Novices, and this has been quoted many times before and shown pretty, pretty well in the research, doing fitness of any type tends to just improve their fitness overall. Once we start getting to the point where someone is competing in powerlifting, a late stage novice or an intermediate, like you said, they're not going to regress to being advanced or, or an intermediate, right? So just by doing crappy training, um, most powerlifters will plateau uh, based on whatever is kind of like a low stage intermediate for their genetics. So that means the experience of working with a, a swath of competitors uh, and seeing them improve that is how an expert develops their expertise, seeing those, those, those relationships. Uh, and, and importantly, not just firing anyone who doesn't do well and blaming on them for lack of adherence, but actually <laughs> assessing failures and successes uh, and, and, and kind of revising your plan, going back to the, the so-called drawing. Going off of that, actually, sorry to, uh, to interrupt, interrupt, but I think that that's something that that's really, really important because some, sometimes um, we can become so um, grounded in oh, this one thing worked or like, oh, well, if, like if somebody can't follow your plan and like, obviously like, you're gonna have like one person here or there that may not be able to follow like the plan, but you know, countless other athletes. But like what you said with regression towards the, the mean, if lots of people are, are unable to, to sustain that, such as with a Bulgarian method for a prolonged period of time, it's probably not the best long-term approach and isn't gonna produce the best outcomes, so. I just, I just wanted to put that out there. Oh, well said. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, yeah, the Bulgarian method or some of the Eastern European approaches or some of that, that sports system is very interesting because when you have a high population of people who can go into a very challenging standardized system, and if we know that only a small percentage of them make it through, and then only a small percentage of the people who make it through become elite, uh, all we can say is that that program only works for the people it worked for, which is not, this is a very obvious statement. You know, it's not very helpful. So that kind of dovetails nicely into, okay, then what can we learn from anecdote? Uh, we know, like there, there's a saying, success leaves clues. 
you know, and if we've kind of kind of controlled for this regression to the mean thing, uh, success at the highest levels in sports science is something, or rather in sport, is something that sports scientists pay attention to, because we know at the very highest level that there's few things that discriminate between athletes. If you're going to win at a certain level, that means everybody has these certain prerequisites to get to that, that spot. So maybe there is something to, uh, to success, but I think it's important to know what those clues are. And if you have been a, a coach who has successfully taken a broad population of athletes to improving their totals past the novice stage, that means you're doing more right than wrong. doesn't mean you're not doing wrong. doesn't mean you're doing the best, but success lead clues basically says what I've done hasn't prevented improvement. So we know that you're not wrong. We don't know that you're right. You know? So I think that is the limits of anecdotes while the limits of science is kind of that generalizability. Um, and it gives you a very fuzzy picture of what you should be doing. And then you can kind of, you know, like it's a relay race that the science then passes the baton onto your anecdotal experience. Uh, and then you can try to be like, all right, so I've got the big rocks in place. This individual uh, seems to have these specific responses or they remind me of this other person that was like them. Like, oh, you know who was built just like you? And when I switched them from conventional to sumo, they started crushing it. Let's try that. Um, and as you build a more catalog of experience as a coach, you're more likely to be right than wrong. Uh, and that's a kind of a good probabilistic way of looking at it and thinking of it. Um, so the, the final piece and arguably the most important piece uh, when you're designing individualized training programs is that uh, individual preferences piece. And so, for example, you might look at someone and be like, yeah, the sumo deadlift is going to be great for them, you know, because I've had so many experience people who kind of are built like that anthropometrically. I've taken the science to know that I need to have this kind of linear approach. We're going to taper. We're going to get more specific as we get close. I'm also looking at this person and I see, you know, certain, you know, like, proportionality to their physique. I'm thinking, oh, you know what? They're, they're, they're strong, but they're really lacking a lot of upper body mass, which is actually quite common in uh, junior powerlifters. Uh, they, they typically, they're just as strong as the open at, at a high level, except for their bench, which is interesting. So maybe it takes more time to develop that upper body musculature. So, okay, I, I see that. And I see the sumo deadlift thing. I'm going to have them do a lot of volume for their upper body. And I want to give them all this hypertrophy. But if they say, hey, I can only work out, you know, two days a week. And by the way, I have a prior back injury uh, or a prior hip injury, excuse me. Now, all of a sudden you have to modify your decision. Like, oh, well, is a lot of sumo pulling good for someone with a hip injury? And okay, well, hold on. How do I have, you know, 20 sets a week of bodybuilding on top of their powerlifting training if only been training twice a week? Now, all of a sudden, all that goes out the window because just like I described in, the, in my training pyramid, the base is adherence. You know, I think... A lot of the times when people and they find what might even be a good cookie cutter program, as good as they can be, is that they'll try to apply what they feel their favorite influencer or scientist or whatever is optimal. Like someone will grab the muscle and strength pyramid. Let's say they're a big fan of me, which of course they are. No, but in all seriousness, they might misapply what I'm trying to teach them. They go, okay, hey, the advanced program, I want to be advanced. They're not advanced. Mistake number one. And that's a six day per week program. Awesome. They work night shifts on a rotating schedule, five days per week, and they're a part-time student, and they have two kids. Terrible idea to try to train six days a week. It's going to be worse than even maybe training three or four times a week. And they try to do that because it's optimal on paper. And then they just beat themselves up when they fail on it or feel there's something wrong with the program or get hurt 
um, or are only able to train four days per week, which is actually great considering that person's schedule, but feel like they're failing all the time. So I think most importantly is you have to take all that information about the person and then filter it through, the, through their reality, their needs, their preferences, their fears, their prior injury history, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, one of the things, and this is an actually an interesting conversation that just popped in my head, uh, Andrea Valdez, who is our chief operations officer uh, at 3DMJ, she did coaching with us for a while before she moved into that operations role. And when we get our client reports on a weekly basis, uh, they normally come with a spreadsheet, some videos of their lifts and potentially their physique, depending on what sport they're in, bodybuilding or powerlifting or what their goals are. Uh, and we have all this objective data and then our impression of, of their, their movement or, or their physique development or their progress over time. And then they also give us a subjective report, either a video report or typed out how things went. And one of the things she likes to do is she would look at just the objective data first and not read their report and go, okay, what would I do without any input from them? Uh, and then she would look at their subjective data and then so to try not and try to not be, not that you don't want to be influenced by their subjective experience. You absolutely do, but trying to remain objective and as an observer and go, okay, here's their experience. Here's what I'm seeing. Here's what I would do with their robot. And then how do I take the, the most of the elements of what I would just do and then filter that through their experiences, their needs, their preferences, their emotions and their life reality. Some of that subjective stuff is actually just a subjective report of objectivity. Like it's not subjective that you have to pick up an extra shift on Saturday. You know, that's just important information that's logistical. So I think that process is what that third leg of the evidence-based stool looks like. Um, and, you know, I, I could add a bunch of other things that might come into that. You know, we know that on average, uh, bands and chains are not more effective than training uh, with just normal barbells at the group level. But was that, or is that, is that research on people who specifically have a miss their deadlifts at lockout? No. Is there a logical rationale to why overloading the top end with bands or chains of a deadlift might be helpful for someone who struggles at lockout? Potentially, you know? So I think making those kind of logical connections and betting on things that, that make logical sense, even though we don't have science, combining that with individual differences, and then also your collective experiences as a someone at least working towards being an expert, or if you're not, if you're a new coach, this is why there's the internet. You know, this is why you can have mentors. You know, you don't have to rely on the fact that all you've done is really coached your brother for free for a couple months, like last week. That's, that doesn't make any sense. The last couple months, for, for a couple months, you've coached him. If that's your only coaching experience, um, then yeah, you're not an expert yet. But the only way you're going to become one is by doing a lot of coaching. But that doesn't mean you can't look into getting a mentor, go on to uh, like, like for what I did, like you, you mentioned before we started recording, uh, how I learned a lot from Mike Tushir. Uh, he influenced me that to, to actually do my PhD on, on RPE. I collected every post he made on, on a forum into a document. I just read through it and made sure I actually understood what he was saying. And I listened to his podcasts. I followed a lot of people in my early career who I was able to identify to the best of my ability is I think these people are experts. You know, what they say makes, makes logical sense. It matches up with other people who I see are that way. Um, they're not speaking in hyperbole. Uh, they're speaking probabilistically, which is something that actual experts do rather than, than in absolutes typically. Um, their confidence level scales with what I think is a reasonable level of confidence for even knowing something. Um, you know, I was able to differentiate someone like that from someone like, say, Charles Poliquin, who'd be like, hey, taking this supplement like this is going to give you a 6% improvement in your power clean. I'm like, how could you know that? 
you know, like you don't have an alter, alternate reality machine or a, uh, like the dev simulator of the world to test that uh, with, with a twin, you know? So I think um, that is something you can do before you develop that skill. But anyway, that was a really complex answer to how you take an evidence-based framework. You need to know the limitations of science. You need to leverage that uh, based on what the individual can do, their situation, and then add it to uh, your personal experiences. Absolutely. And I think it's important actually that you do um, explain, you know, why actually we need to take into all these considerations. You know, whenever I do a Q&A on my Instagram story and I have, you know, a, my demographic is a lot of beginners and early or intermediate lifters, you know, because of my, it's because of my age, you know, I'm 22 years old and, you know, so I, more people that are my age are going to relate to, to me and be like, okay, well, you know, he's done this and they find inspiring, motivating, whatever. But whenever I answer a question, you know, and I'll have some rants here and there just because I'm just trying to understand, you know, help people understand who don't have a science background, who haven't gone through a university degree, who don't understand, you know, how science works and then, you know, understand that the body that we can have a lot of the science says this, and theory can say this, and then my experience can say this. Um, and those are all, you know, valid pieces of data because they are our experiences. They have been observed in a lab um, or what, what have you. And, you know, when, when I explain, you know, when my answer is a lot of gray, it's like, well, what is your goal? You know, like what, like what you said in, in the case of bands and, and chains, um, you know, in, in the case of most raw power lifters, you know, if you look at like a progression towards the, the, the mean, is that as important if you don't have a bench shirt when, you know, you're probably going to be more challenged, you know, in the mid range for most raw bench, you know, for most raw lifters. Well, yeah, maybe not, but if you have an athlete that does have a specific weakness and they, and you, you notice, Oh, they're deadlift. They always seem to, you know, really, really struggle at that little top half of the deadlift. Or, you know, like what you, like what you said in the case of a junior, well, this guy actually has a lot of muscle mass on his, on his legs. He can actually, you know, deadlift, you know, 700 pounds. So add hundred pounds to his, his lower body lifts. You know, I can see that happening in the next year, but I can't really see that happening with the current muscle mass, at least not to the extent that the athlete wants or what I want for their long-term development. Maybe I'm going to spend a little bit more time on their upper body and maybe take some of that volume that I would have, you know, had for the lower body um, and dedicate more to upper body hypertrophy work and maybe put, you know, further away from competition, more maintenance volumes around quote unquote, unquote for my lower body to maintain the still skill, the muscle mass and the neuromuscular efficiency and, and all that stuff. So I guess then kind of just circling back, um, do you, so obviously we kind of just described there is no one size fits all. If you are having, you know, in, the, in, our, in our case, a late beginner, early or intermediate who is noticing, man, my gains are slowing down, but I still really want to get stronger. You know, I want to do all the things that are necessary for me to, to get stronger, you know, develop more neuromuscular efficiency, um, you know, increase, you know, have more, you know, osteopenation angles of the muscle, relative to the adaptation of, of specific movement patterns, um, build more muscle. Um, would you recommend for most um, strength athletes based off of your, and I, again, I understand we're kind of shoehorning into like a generality here, but in the case of 
a, a takeaway, do you think that somebody should focus more specific periods of their training on developing, uh, you know, the qualities of a, specific, of a specific rep range? So, for example, how I will usually program is for hypertrophy, it's going to be mainly, you know, sets of six to 12, to 12 reps, less specific work. Um, and then I'll, you know, progressively go get more and more specific. Um, I guess, how would you program in your rep, rep ranges for a long period? Would you do more of a DUP? And in the case of a DUP, do more of an emphasis based off of the actual goal of that phase of training with putting every other, you know, aspect on the back burner or would you have a specific block where it is really hyper-focused on developing one quality? Great question. So there is, um, there's limited data uh, that would suggest that in trained lifters, uh, undulating periodization is slightly better for strength development. Um, and this is a little more clear. And I don't think this is anything to do with, with different body regions. It's a little more clear for the, the bench press, if I recall correctly, uh, looking at some of Greg Knuckles analysis, in addition to some of the peer reviewed published stuff. So undulating programs though, we have to think about why might an undulating program be better than a, than a linear one. And this sort of, and why is it for trained lifters specifically? And this sort of goes back to, it goes back to two things. One, why were undulating programs developed in the first place? And then two, uh, it goes to what is unique about trained lifters compared to novice lifters, kind of going back to that regression to the mean. So in novice lifters, periodization in general doesn't seem to be as effective for trained lifters uh, because so much works. And the definition that is typically used in the literature for what is periodization is that there is some change in the rep range. Uh, so a non-periodized program uh, would still be progressive typically. Uh, what they might have is they'll give someone a eight to 12 RM load that they will use and any time with the current load they're using, they can get more than 12 reps to kick the load up next time. So they try to keep them in the same rep range, but progressive and probably training to failure because that's what we, they do in science to standardize things. Um, but the whole training block. So it's progressive in nature and the loading range doesn't change. The number of sets doesn't change. The rest period doesn't change. The exercise selection doesn't change. All that stuff is static. Um, the comparative periodized one in a linear program, it might move from 12 to 15 all the way down to four to six. And if you wanted to have a volume match comparison, you'd have eight to 12 versus that, but it would be the same net volume, uh, the same average load, but one would be linear, you know? Uh, and they would get you more specificity towards the end. So undulating just means that either week to week in a weekly undulating format, or as you said, a daily undulating periodization format on different days of the week, you have different targets. Um, typically though, a daily undulating programming strategy is still linear. So for example, if you were to compare a linear to a D program, uh, that DUP program, it might start out at, you know, 15, 10, eight as the three different undulations earlier in, in, in this, this, let's say 12 week program. Later and towards the end, it might be eight, six, four, or even six, four, two as the undulation pattern, right? Now that kind of clarifies the difference between an undulating and a linear one. There's these distinct blocks, if you will, or block periodization is kind of a truncated version of linear. Um, and they're still, linear. Both are linear. I think that's an important thing to remember. They get more specific over time. Uh, the reason why undulating periodization was originally developed 
uh, is to deal with the decay of specific adaptations. So ironically, I, 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 like, uh, I took a shot at Charles Poliquin, rest in peace, earlier. But back in the late 80s, he was the one who proposed the idea of undulating periodization. And this is an extremely important contribution to the literature. Uh, and there was a time when Charles Poliquin had much better advice than in the later portion of his career. So to give credit where it's due, uh, he developed the idea of, an undulate, of undulating periodization to deal with the traditional linear pattern of spending like a whole block at very high reps. And then for traditional sports, not necessarily powerlifting, moving to then moving from 20s to 10s to 5s, uh, you're going to see a loss of some of that uh, work capacity, a loss of that muscular endurance, a loss of some of that uh, you know, strength endurance set to set. Uh, and you might even see some loss of hypertrophy as you go down just those fives. You could make an argument theoretically that if you want to peak overall fitness or specific performance that might have to do with multiple components like strength, uh, you would want to not lose some of those other qualities, right? You don't want to have your workload capacity become insufficient to train optimally for strength. You don't want to have some loss of muscle mass as that potentially would lower the ceiling on your strength. So undulation uh, just means that you do a little bit of the prior or next uh, adaptation that's coming to taper or smooth out those connections uh, while you still have an overall phase. Like, you know, comparing an undulation pattern of 15, 12, 10, it's still quite different than 6, 4, 2. Um, you know, and you wouldn't put those next to each other. You probably bridge them with something like four, six, eight, and then six, eight, 12. Right. Um, so that is kind of a good, fair, like uh, charitable version of undulating periodization. As I mentioned before, undulating, like, like that's not one program and it's, 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 there's many iterations of it. You could take a really shitty version of undulating programming and making it, you know, be, be unsuccessful. Uh, you can also have a block model with undulations within it. So you could have, you know, an accumulation block, which can take from block periodization and all of your undulations are double digits, you know, from the 10 to, to, to 20 rep range if you want. Then you can have an a intensification phase, right? Um, where now your undulations are still there, but they're undulating in a more low uh, rep range. You might be anywhere from, you know, two to eight or something like that. And doing that would make the contrast between the two a little more smoothed out and would, would reduce any theoretically loss of, of some of the work capacity and muscular, muscular hypertrophy that you got from the first block while focusing on, on strength. Um, so the reason why it may work better for uh, experienced or non-novices is that a novice who does a strength program is going to gain strength, hypertrophy, muscular endurance, and general fitness because all of those qualities are already quite low and doing something is always going to produce overload compared to nothing. If you take an advanced lifter and you put them on a, uh, a program that's all three to sixes and they've, you know, let's say they're, they're, they're quote unquote peaked at the moment, they'll probably lose size while doing resistance training, right? Mind blown but it's because what they were doing previously to reach a advanced level peak in hypertrophy was a lot, you know, um, take your average high level natural bodybuilder and you put them on a peaking block for powerlifting. They're going to lose some size despite that they're training very hard with weights. So I think that kind of nuance is important to understand why, uh, different periodization models might be better for more advanced lifters. Um, and I, I think block, 
undulating and some of the other models that are out there that came after the initial periodization uh, literature and experiments and uh, back from the 60s, all of them have tried to deal with the issue of different competition schedules for different sports and also the loss of prior adaptations. So I think the take home here is not, you should be doing undulating periodization if you're an advanced lifter, um, but rather you should do, be doing something to make sure that if you spent a period of time building workload capacity and hypertrophy, that you can hold on to most of it uh, as you move towards a peak uh, and, and you try to compete. Um, so if you're doing something which I don't think most people would do, where you're training completely in the six to 15 rep range, and then you just started doing singles for four weeks, that probably wouldn't be a good idea. It doesn't take much to hold on to your muscle size. And there's only so much deliberate practice you can get that benefits strength directly. Um, I would, I would guess that if we took advanced lifters and we had them squat to a max six days a week versus four days a week, there wouldn't be much of a difference because you're already getting so much practice. There's only so much you can do. There's only so much you can leverage specificity. You're going to hit that ceiling. Um, so why not reduce some of that and spend more time, uh, just doing whatever maintenance qualities are needed for the, for the other adaptations you've got. Um, as a practical example with my own lifting career, when I'm not competing in bodybuilding, which is most of my time, because who wants to always be starving to death, um, is I'm competing in Olympic weightlifting, powerlifting, and dabbling in strongman. So I, I'm very interested in the, in the question of at my various skill level in each one of those strength sports, what is the minimum amount I can to make progress and the minimum amount I can to not decay? Because then when I focus on another one, I can put much more effort into it. And so I periodize uh, based on, 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 on kind of that process, which encapsulates some of the questions you're asking. So overall, to get to what I'm saying, um, if you're taking a, an intermediate lifter uh, who is wanting to optimize things, move to the next level, I think you need to be concerned both about non-specific and specific work. You need to be doing training at times that is optimized towards building muscle mass. And then you need to make sure you're not losing it while you go through training periods that are highly specific. Um, you know, I like to use singles, for example, uh, in increasing frequency and increasing RPE or intensity or proximity to failure, if you will, as I get closer to a competition, because it's more specific to what you're going to do on game day, which is nine lifts that are at a seven and a half RPE or higher for singles, right? Um, and well, hopefully none of them are at 11 RPE. Hopefully you don't miss any lifts, right? Um, However, just like you don't want to lose the hypertrophy adaptations from a higher hypertrophy block, you also don't want to go into an intensity block and feel like, oh my God, this feels like a million pounds on my back, even though it's just like, uh, like a six RM load, right? So you don't want moderately heavy triples to feel like death on your back. Cause that's going to be some lost time as you undershoot the load and you just acclimate to having heavy load on your back. So for example, I might have someone work up to a single at a six or seven RPE in an in a, in a, in a accumulation block. They're primarily doing non-specific work, bodybuilding, uh, and doing like touch and go bench, uh, touch and go uh, uh, deadlifts. They might be doing high bar squats instead of low bar, for example, uh, and then doing a lot of accessory work. And their RPEs are in like the five to eight range and their reps are in the four to eight rep range in the main lifts and higher than that on the secondary lifts. But they might start with doing a single at a six or a single at a seven on the comp squat, comp bench, or comp deadlift, at least once per week, because they maintain that skill. And really how hard is working up to a single at a six on one of the big three? It's not much of a time cost. 
it's not much of a, of a recovery factor. And for an intermediate, there's only so much you can do that will be beneficial. So why not invest, you know, that extra 10 minutes to start things off and then move into your back off work after that. And then conversely, the next phase I move into, we'll see more singles at a higher RPE and less back off work or lower reps on that back off work or less accessory work. So kind of the throughput becomes more specific as they move closer and closer to competition. I really agree with a lot of, of what you said there. And actually from my own practical experience, um, earlier on in this block, about three weeks ago, I went off program and my coach gave me crap for it, but I was like, it's a, and I, obviously it's a stupid idea. It's, it's because I follow a block periodized model. Um, that's how my, my coach does it. I did nothing below really six reps. And I decided it would be a good idea to like just do a single at like RPE, like nine ish or like 10. And um, surprisingly, um, you know, when I hit 650 on my deadlift in competition, the 585 felt just as hard. And uh, I, I think that. What, what you ju just said about the whole utility of, I guess, an undulating model and keeping some aspects of each quality for the uh, later stage low lifters, I think that is important. I think that for myself in practical experience, what I've noticed with a lot of my athletes is that once they do go from, you know, let's say if they're doing specifically, you know, so I, I, and I, I am 100%. I don't have my, my, my ego way up in the clouds where I can say, I know everything. I like, I'm freaking 22. I just graduated with my bachelor's degree. I've only been lifting for three and a half years. And so I'm willing to like, you know, experiment and see what works best for me and what, what works well with, with, with the trends. And I will um, play an anecdote to the fact that I will, I do think that if you do take time completely off, there are certain periods where it is, where it is appropriate, you know, where maybe you might not have somebody who's right after me even do a single because the idea of doing a single gives them PTSD. Um, <laughs> but I keeping some quality in a general preparatory period, such as in hypertrophy, maybe you just do a slight single to maintain that neuromuscular efficiencies that you are so used to doing a slightly higher load than, than 75% of your max. Um, so then once you move into a, a more specific strength block and then a peaking block, you can still you know, have a, there, there's less of a, of a lag time, I guess. And losing time and productive training is very, like, that's meaningful. Like, even if it's like in one week of acclimation or two weeks of a transition block, that's still time that could have been quote unquote wasted through productive overload training. It's why deloading and whatnot, you know, I, I always will schedule in my deep, my deloads. And I just think, hmm, probably at this, at this point, they're going to need it. But I also rely on their feedback, their subjective feedback, and how they how are they are they feeling? Are they still able to progress? You know, um, and then maybe I'll um, extend it, or if they're feeling really beat up because they had a crazy life stress and all, and we didn't know, um, you know, we'll deload early. So I think that, that my main takeaway from that is that if you are a competitive athlete who is interest interested as a power lifter in developing all the qualities of powerlifting, you know, being able to still have a productive off season, the powerlift is for off season where you're putting on some tissue and, you know, focusing on higher reps, still incorporating some sport specific work is important. Um, I think that's a good takeaway, man. And there's also some other little side benefits. So uh, I like, which, I like the way you said, like, you know, lost training time or lost training 
time at a peak or at least a, a good level, I'll use that kind of subjective determination, is, is, does matter. Because if we're talking about a meat prep, let's say you did have a, a really non-specific block of training uh, where you don't do any singles or you, you haven't touched anything, RM load. And like you said, maybe you can deadlift 650, but 585 feels like 650 now. Let's say you go and you start that single and you do you do 585 and like, oh my God, that's heavy. Not only is that going to create some psychological fear, oh my God, in eight weeks, I'm going to try to deadlift more than 650 and 585 was a nine and a half. That means next week, what's the most you're going to try? 600, you know? So how much time do you have? Because you're always using the prior strength as your reference point to build from. Uh, even in an auto-regulated model, you're still you, you're aware, you have knowledge of your previous performance. You're only going to reach so far. You're not going to be like, you know, maybe that was a bad day. Let me go for 640 today. You're probably not going to make a 65 kilo jump, you know, from session to session. I don't think you should, you know. So if you keep in those reasonable, moderate singles, uh, it, it bridges that better. So when you're in that accumulation block, that 585 that felt like a nine and a half, maybe feels like a seven and you're like, hey. I'm good to go 610 next time, and that'll be an eight. And you'll build that confidence. You'll be where you think you are. Maybe you wouldn't even hit 585. Maybe you would have done 600, you know? So it, it gives you uh, less time where you are not confident in your abilities and not able to make those progressive jumps towards that peak. And additionally, uh, those singles and even a moderate RPE, that's still like 85% of your 1RM at the lowest, you know? A single to five, single to six. And that basically gives you a diagnostic tool. I don't expect your strength to be going up during accumulation block. Uh, I expect fatigue to be a little higher. I expect muscle damage to be higher. And I expect your strength maybe to be, your top end to be decaying a little bit because of non-specific training. But how much is it decaying? That's something I want to know. I, if all of a sudden what I think should be a six RPE jumps all the way up to an eight, maybe I am not building enough qualities or maintaining enough maintenance work on your top end strength while I build uh, muscle mass. And you know, we need to be doing slightly more sets of, of, of the big three, more, a little more specific work. It tells me better about is the maintenance dose I'm giving you actual maintenance. Like I expect it to be suppressed, you know, that's why, you know, a taper and a whole comp process might put two or 3% on your, on your lift on game day, even from an intensity block. So I kind of extrapolate that back all the way to the accumulation block. I expect you to be 5% down, right? But if you're 10% down, if you're 15% down, does that tell me there's something wrong with this accumulation block? Is it going to be a real tough bridge to your intensity block? I can't know that if we're only doing, you know, touch and go, uh, you, know, you know, close grip bench with your feet up. Like that's going to be different enough to your comp bench for me to dismiss any kind of uh, low load performance that cock my eyebrow. My eyebrow probably won't cock. You know, and I think you could say the same thing for like a front squat or if you normally pull sumo doing, doing conventional or an RDL. If you're not touching anything near the loads or the movement pattern that you're actually be competing with, you don't really know uh, if you're, you're building some of those capacities that are going to translate well. Uh, it might be too much of a diversion before you have to become more specific and you're making up lost ground. You didn't necessarily have to lose if you'd just done some more of that specific work to, to maintain that. that specificity yeah and i also think another utility of it in the case of like you know you point out you know oh i'm just doing like an 85 percent single during my you know high, during my hypertrophy based undulation even though you know you may still be doing the undulating model where you do have multiple rep ranges 
Um, not only that, when you do go into an undulating where it's more strength, um, that 85%, you know, that could be a solid, you know, RPE eight, you know, so set of four and you're not going to waste as much, as much time, I guess, getting more used to having a heavier, you know, percentage of your one rep max or your theoretical one rep max, because you know, it changes based on fatigue and that's why RPE is a, is a, is a thing. But it, I guess it, like, like what you said, it kind of just makes the whole training transition times less lag and more productive training. So I think that's all really, really awesome stuff. So I wanted to just, um, I guess now I guess pivot a little bit on into something that I've been, uh, been wondering my, myself is we have this big debate going on right right now in our current, uh, in the current evidence-based practice about, you know, I guess the volume and obviously I'm sure you're sick and tired of hearing about volume, volume, volume. I, my question is different than I think what lots of people have been asking. Um, and my question is, should we even be concerned about a maximum recoverable volume or minimum effective volume and kind of be chasing that? Or should we just be chasing what we know we can consistently recover and adapt from? Um, because I think that there's a lot of confusion based off of people chasing a, the grass is always, always greener because of some studies that have said, Oh, if I do more volume and, and if I can recover from, from it, I get more gains. Sweet. Okay. So let's add on three, three sets. Well, maybe you were doing, you know, 12 sets and you're doing recovering just, just fine. You know, that's still a big increase. You know, that's 25% increase of what you were doing be, before. And, and that's a lot. And that could, you know, take up so much of your recovery capacity that you're not able to actually recover and adapt. And I think this has application to both bodybuilding and powerlifting programming. So when you are programming for somebody, I guess, how concerned should we even be about knowing the, the bottom end and the top end? And should we just seek for finding a spot where we know that we can do well and actually, you know, consistently progress from? Because I think that there's a lot of people that have seen success with both approaches, obviously evidence-based, blah, 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 blah. But my question is, are we overcomplicating the training process too much? And should we be more seeking a happy medium, I guess, of where we know we can see progress? Instead of a good guessing, question. Because I think a lot of the biggest problems and limitations with a maximum um, recoverable volume, if that especially, is you're you're just guessing. You're just throwing darts at a dartboard, hoping that one that one sticks. And this isn't meant to be, you know, a, a call of, of, of anybody. Um, this is just mm-hmm. meant, meant to be a respectful, intellectual conversation about what are are we just kind of having this too much of an ADHD approach with with volume? Yeah, that's a that's that's a great question. I. I think that anytime we decide to onboard additional complexity, we should be very sure uh, that it is worth it. Um, So I also think that anytime we are uh, bootstrapping landmarks as proxies for performance or places to go with uh, training variables in general, 
they need to have a support from an underlying validity perspective. Um, I don't dispute the, the existence of maximum recoverable volume. Um, I think it's probably more useful to talk about it as total training stress, uh, because when we call it maximum recoverable volume, it, it seems to imply that volume is the primary thing uh, we can't recover from. Uh, when, you know, if you were to talk to Mike Isratel, he'll readily acknowledge that maximum recoverable volume changes. If you do a lower volume, it's lower because you're not adapted to as much. So it'll come down to meet you or you can push it up by doing more and then hit your own ceiling. You will also acknowledge that it changes when you're in a deficit, doing cardio, stressed, not sleeping as much. So it's clearly not, you know, you, you, can, you can pay attention to the volume aspect to figure out what's the most you can do, but it's truly the overall allostatic load and training stress uh, that is your, your threshold. And that changes. Um, and while I think he would disagree with you that uh, you are just guessing when, it, when you're trying to determine your minimum effective volume and your maximum recoverable volume, I, I think this goes back to that whole baseline validity. No one has studied or established what is the reliability of someone's maximum recoverable volume. No one's done a study where they've taken uh, a bunch of, say, intermediates and then given them homogenous loads, rest periods, nutrition, and control as many variables as possible, and then just simply started playing with different volumes, and then repeated that process to see if they lost strength at the same volume. Um, and saw, we, we don't know how uh, labile or, or variable that point is where you start to lose strength. And I am definitely not convinced that volume is the biggest player there. I could see other life stresses being, being a player there. Uh, I could see probably not, but potentially intensity being, being a player there, proximity to failure, I think would definitely be a player there. So I, I don't necessarily think that all of a sudden uh, we should be bootstrapping or using landmarks based on something that aren't firm. Uh, what I would agree is firm, but probably means you're not doing as much that you have to wait longer to pay attention is performance. So as a power lifter, everything you should, you do should be resulting in you getting stronger over time over what can be uh, reasonably guessed to be appropriate for your training age. Um, and that has some subjectivity to it. You have to have some delayed elements of gratification. I think you were speaking to the grass is always greener, which is kind of a, conditionally problematic perspective for lifters. A, um, a novice who has a grass is always greener perspective by program hopping within the realm of, of rationally good programs and not spending, like not doing it like every three weeks. Like if you can actually make it through a meso cycle and you switch to a different program and they're within the realm of reasonable, like if this is someone who's listening to me and Micah's retail debate, they're probably not doing like totally crap programs. So not a huge issue you know, if the grass is always greener, because you're probably not going to land on something that's not going to allow you to progress. Uh, and you might experiment enough to figure out what works well for you. However, the grass is always greener mentality for an intermediate or advanced person, I think is more likely to lead you towards stagnation than anything. And you'll find this out pretty quick uh, because making progress at all as an intermediate or advanced lifter is difficult. Um, the question when you're working with high level athletes is not, 
what will get you optimal progress, despite people saying that, despite that's what they want. It, for an advanced lifter, especially drug-free athletes, when I work with them, I am hoping to make progress, period. Because you can see lifters who go through years of time uh, and they're at a high level. So it's not surprising where they can't progress, you know? So, you know, when you, when you talk to natural bodybuilders who are trying to get their stage weight to go up two or three pounds, or when you're trying to get a power lifter to go from a 700 to a 705 total, that's a less than 1% change on their total. So I think people need to be aware that if you have currently landed on something which is producing measurable progress as an intermediate or an advanced lifter, and you're deciding, you know what, something might be better out there, or maybe I could be doing more, that is potentially a problem because you're already doing more than enough and more than most things right if you're getting that progress. Um, and I would say that the literature is biased towards novices, um, lesser trained individuals. Uh, if you've ever worked in a lab and trained people, they will typically tell you, especially in a traditional training study where you push to failure, which a lot of the volume literature is, that's the hardest I've ever trained when they look at an individual training session. Um, they're not used to being pushed by a whole bunch of lab personnel. They're not used to having an automatic progression in load every week. The percentages rise. I'm not used to being on a really structured program. Um, so we're looking at people who are increasing not only their quantity of work, but also their quality and are also having a whole lot of accountability they didn't previously have, a whole lot of motivation and potentially having other factors controlled and provided, like being given uh, post-workout whey protein as a thank you for coming into the study, making sure they're eating at least 1.6 grams per kg per day, having a dietitian go over with you multiple time points, hey, what is your eating habits? Let's try to replicate this. So while studies are cookie cutter programs, um, and sometimes people will poo-poo the training protocols in studies, most people are already doing a cookie cutter program. They're just doing it with less motivation, uh, less accountability, less effort. Um, and uh, they're, they're, they're probably missing some sessions when they have to be in the lab on Monday, Wednesday, Friday with a team of people trying to get the most out of them within the confines of that program. So I think we need to be aware uh, if that population is not, not representative of you, you know, if you're a USAPL nationally qualified powerlifter and you feel like, oh, that makes me an intermediate is actually crazy. You're an intermediate elite power lifter, you know, like, but you're not an actual intermediate. Um, and you're reading a study on people who can squat 1.5 times body weight. You know, I'm talking to you, you can deadlift 650 pounds. You're would probably be among the 0.001% strongest people to ever appear in the scientific literature. Um, your mentality is, is thus probably different from those people. So when you read a study where these quote unquote trained lifters, and they are trained, I don't want to, you know, poo-poo them or anything like that. If they increase their volume and they got faster gains, is that going to apply to me? And if I'm already making gains, isn't that something that I should be pretty protective of? So in general, I think uh, you don't want to think like a gambler. You want to think like an investor. You know, uh, What is the opportunity cost? What is the potential loss I could have? As a novice, moving to a new program from one that's working, so long as you actually complete it and you train hard and all that stuff, you're probably gonna make very similar gains unless you jump to something really stupid. As an intermediate, and you're making really good gains, jumping to something else, I don't have stats to back this up, but I would think there's probably a higher chance of you making worse progress. 
I can um, speak from uh, for, for, from anecdote. I, I've just, I've done the I've done the cyclical volume. And I, I've seen great gains from it. I've done static. I've seen great gains from, from it too. Um, I, I I think that you and I will definitely uh, agree here with progress is progress. And if you're progressing well, if it's consistently, and if you have a less heterogeneity and more, more homogeneity with your training variables and you can predict, predict your own response better, that just means more consistent, more measurable progress because the more moving variables that you have changing, because life is already complex enough, you know, maybe you only got six hours of sleep last night. Maybe that made your RPE go up, like, you know, literally like by, by one point. So instead of having this, oh, well, last week I did 330 on squat for eight. Okay, well, my actual, you know, from RPE target at the same RPE, Unfortunately, I can't go up, you know, my, pre, you know, what I wanted to do and maybe I have to go down even, um, you know, it's stuff like, like that. And if you're increasing sets or, or whatnot, just to, just across, just because you, you think that you, that you should, or maybe, maybe because that's better. Well, what do you, what, why, why did that really happen? Was it because you missed a meal yesterday? Was it because you're, you know, you're dieting? Is it because you added a set need, needlessly? Um, and I, I, I think there's certainly times when it is appropriate, like when, you know, you're trying to functionally overreach for a, for a meet, but, but, you know, but before you taper to get that small increase in performance on, on meat day, then yeah, you should probably definitely push it and above what, you, what you're normally doing. Um, but I also think it's important to have a baseline of where can I progress, I guess, quote unquote, at all, you know, like we said, the search for optimal is kind of futile because it kind of does change from person to person. You're not the same. You know, you might find, I think that this is why as coaches and as evidence-based practitioners, you frame this at the, at the beginning um, when you're, you know, you're discussing just a basic client, you know, what worked well for, for, for you? What didn't work well for, for you with, with this? What do you think that you can, can improve? Or, you know, like just knowing like their, their personality, that gives a lot of insight into how much of a response, you know, do I, or how much of a dose does, does this person need? I know from, you know, like I've had people ask me like something as trivial, I was like, what's my most of time? And I'm like, well, it's like, I, I, I kind of, I'm tempted to like go into like the, well, it's really like 55, 45, like on, like, I, or like, how do I know it? And like, one, like, why does that matter that? much because you kind of just know that through through experience because you know the type two muscle fiber more dominant power lifters that are very 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 good you know you have guys like like yuri belkan who are so strong and are so fast twitched they can't you know they deadlift once every every two weeks because that that fatigue is so great for them you know whereas if i was to tell somebody who was you know or like you know in the non-responder studies for example you know they're so slow twitched they need that so much higher volume so I, I, I think that what you said about just seeking, you know, if, especially as a beginner or, you know, as, as an intermediate or an advanced, because as a beginner, you know, you can kind of just do whatever and you'll, and you'll grow because your baseline is so low. When you go up and your baseline is increasing as you get more training experience, you know, making any sort of measurable progress over the long term is meaningful. And I think that sometimes the comparison, especially in the social media day and age where we are constantly seen with the top 1% or, or less than that. And we think we need to be, to be, be better. So therefore there's something wrong with our training protocol. 
And if you're making good progress and if it's measurable and if you can see a linearity of, you know, obviously there's going to be pulsatility across microcycles and whatever, but macro cycle to macro cycle, you're improving and it's at a good rate for where you think that, that you probably should be. I, you probably don't need to change that much and maybe more of a reactionary approach is, is, is better. And like what, what you said, measuring performance is a little bit more difficult to actually quantify because a lot of things do play, play into it. Um, sometimes that's the, just the best approach. And that's just how the trial training goes, because I think it kind of will, and again, I'm saying, I, I think here, but I think it will kind of balance out either way that, that you do it. Um, with and it is a pulsatile volume where you're kind of going up and then going down. Eventually, we know as our as adaptive beings adapt, uh, it becomes harder and harder and harder to adapt. So once you kind of are, are you know you're telling, I'm not really adapting that much from a five by five anymore or whatever. Maybe I'm going to add in six sets of five on you know this squat workout. And then you will measure the data and be like, okay, well, this is probably good. So I know I'm, I'm kind of rambling a, a little bit, but I guess my main takeaway from, from that, and again, we need more, you know, we, we need more research essentially, but I think if you're needlessly changing things, it kind of is, it, it's needless. And it kind of leads to a lot of tail, tail spinning and no validity and, or I guess not as much reliability because I think reliability is so important with, with your, with your training and you, you know, as a bodybuilder, when you're peaking for a, a show, like you, like you said that, you know, you know, over experience, you know, you, you peak differently than, than your, your athletes and getting that reliable response is more important and experimentation is, and you know, that will require some experimentation. Um, and I think people are scared of having to experiment, but I think that's why exercise science is so cool too. But just being willing to, I guess, trust your intuition and don't make changes needlessly unless there's a real need. I agree. Don't make needless changes unless you need to make changes. I like it. Solid ending. <laughs> no, no, seriously. Though, I, I think uh, I don't disagree with any of that. Um, I think just to a uh, steel man, the approach of adding sets microcycle to microcycle, you can absolutely do that operating with your probably what you've observed is appropriate volume for you as kind of the midpoint of that cycle. So you start below it, you go higher than it, and such that the changes week to week are small, you know, like adding one set. Like if you had a six week mesocycle uh, and you know that you can handle somewhere between 12 to 14, you can go. 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, you know, and uh, I'm not even sure that was six, but you get my point is you can uh, kind of cross that average in the middle of the, the block, start below it, um, and then track strength performance over time. And you would be able to see what was the average uh, set volume that you did that seemed to be related to when you were or weren't progressing. Uh, and you can work from there. So um, you can also use increases or decreases in sets in the same way that I described the utility of a block or undulating pattern as a way to bridge between uh, different types of training, you know? So if you were to, as an example, go from an accumulation block to an intensity block, but you weren't gonna compete, and you wanted to go back to an accumulation block, what would you do to get from a lower volume, higher intensity approach to a higher volume, 
higher rep approach, you would probably need to do like an intro week. So you might take a couple of microcycles to, to, to up your set volume. Um, likewise, uh, you know, the, the, the deload at the end of an accumulation block effectively works as a, as a taper down into uh, the, the, the set volume you're going to use in that intensity block if it's lower. And during that deload, uh, you can make it a little more like a, a like a like an intensification deload. And you can drop your sets and increase your load slightly. You know, if you were using predominantly the, the 10 to 15 rep range, that deload could be like eights, and then you can move into uh, an, a that intensification block with uh, better ability to handle those loads. So that's it's not to say that uh, you should never increase sets week to week, but the magnitude of it. Uh, the reference point of knowing what you can handle uh, and the utility of it as a way to bridge uh, so you don't lose prior adaptations. Now that all meets some of the principles that we already have established uh, with periodization and makes logical sense. Um, but the idea that you need to push all the way up to the most volume you can handle before seeing strength loss in the mesocycle, I think that is a, that's probably the only area that I would uh, caution against doing because I don't think it's necessary and might potentially be worse. Sure. Um, you know, just, just, just going off of that last little uh, tidbit is uh, I think that what you uh, pointed out there is it's still is around an average of what you best re respond to. And again, you know, if you're always, if you're always changing, you might not know what that average is. And so you might not know, you know, am I only used to overcomplicating this? And then, you know, obviously, you know, you can, you can, you know, do, do that approach as a way to, you know, I could also improve adherence. If somebody is like, Oh, I'm going to 12 to, to 16 sets per, per week on this muscle group. And then, you know, Oh, I drop back down. And then, you know, for like, I do like eight sets for my, for my deal. So that that's half of it. And then I resume the process, you know, that can also help with that adherence um, for something that's a difficult time backing off when they have to, um, you know, especially before they're actually like, just beat to shit for lack of a better, a better, better term mm -hmm. um, because powerlifting and bodybuilding, you know, we, we love to, we love to, to push and, you know, that's kind of part of why the max, the masochistic love of the iron. So I think I wanted to um, just leave it out off there. I think that there, that's a lot for the listeners to unpack and, and take away. Um, so I, I wanted to thank you so much for, you know, being willing to, to come on. Um, I really, really appreciate it. Those of you guys who do not know who, Eric Helms is obviously you just listen to this, go follow him. Uh, Eric, where can they follow you? And uh, yeah. a little bit, little bit more about, about you or, and get coached by the man himself. Absolutely. So yeah, first off, just thanks for having me on for sure. Um, and I really appreciate the discussion. I hope it was helpful to everyone listening. Um, and I can't guarantee you can be coached by me because I'm actually not taking on any new clients. However, the team that I am the chief scientific officer for, um, yes, that is a throwback to Star Trek, is 3D Muscle Journey. Um, so we provide uh, sustainable performance support from an evidence-based perspective for the drug-free lifting community. Uh, we work primarily with, with bodybuilders and some powerlifters as well. Uh, you can check us out at 3dmusclejourney.com. That's the number three, the letter D, then musclejourney.com. Uh, and then if you want to follow me more closely, I post multiple times per week uh, on Instagram at helms3dmj. You can find links to podcasts I do, like this one, uh, other appearances, articles, blogs, etc. Um, and I've got links to all the other good stuff. But you can find links to my books, my research review that I do with the uh, the rest of the mass crew, 
um, and uh, the 3DMJ Vault, where we have our courses all at 3DMuscleJourney.com. And also, you can check out my podcast, Omar Isif, Iron Culture, where we talk about all this and more. Yeah, so I, I would I definitely vouch for a mass research review. I am subscribed to it, and just there's a ton of really good value. And if you guys want to stay up to date, it's the most easily, easily digestible form of research review you can possibly have. And it has, you know, it's not boring to, to read, unlike having to sort through all these, these studies. And, you know, you have Dr. Helms, who is a weirdo and likes doing that stuff for us. But um, anyways, I wanted to, again, thank you for, for coming on. And uh, uh, to all the listeners, thank you for, for listening. And uh, talk to you next time. Bye.